Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. We're here for one of the first episodes of Health Stories. Guys, welcome to the, the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Awesome. Uh, can we start with some introductions? Jared, how about you start? Perhaps let's say what we're working on and where we're most excited about right now in healthcare. I'm Jared Seehofer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Enzyme and also a network leader for Village Global. Enzyme is a software company, a startup that automates the process of getting uh, FDA approval and so radically reducing the time and cost it takes to make a drug or medical device and take it to market. Uh, I would say the thing that's really interesting right now in healthcare tech, health tech, it's a really, really exciting time. I've been involved in the field for going on 14 years now, and it's, it's never been kind of more exciting with more energy. And that's all really driven by, I think, the information revolution finally sort of catching up and having some impact uh, on what we're able to do with improving healthcare, specifically, you know, some areas, digital health, we're sort of seeing the second renaissance of huge amounts of data, uh, whether that be genomic data or data that's being generated by sensors and wearables. Basically, you're seeing these low cost technologies really starting to have a clinical impact, which is then driving interest from investors. So you see a lot of new energy, exciting energy among startups and innovative tech. So on the technology side, a lot of promise, and that's where I spend my time. Great. Hi, I'm Liz Rocket, an investor with Kaiser Permanente Ventures. And just briefly on our fund, so we've had this strategic venture fund offshoot of KP for the last 20 years. So longstanding, uh, and really we get to pull from the wisdom needs insights of our health insurance company, as well as our medical group. So sort of seeing the full landscape of microcosm of the U.S. healthcare system inside our organization. For me, I, uh, I tend to focus on IT, uh, digital health tech-enabled services. That's really where my background all is. And right now, I'm, I lead our investments in Omada, Big Health, Chronotherapeutics, um, as well as some the device and service uh, investments in the full spectrum of how our, our field has evolved. Ryan with the, the other KP. Oh, yes, the other KP. This is Ryan Pinchatson <laughs> from the venture team at Kleiner Perkins. I started a digital health company that was part of First Rock Health uh, Companies, uh, then went into government to uh, work on liberating health data, was part of the healthcare.gov rescue team, and now out on the investing side. I like to think I've seen a lot of parts of this ecosystem, and I still think that I haven't seen enough of it. I spend my energies these days with their tactical system training. Basically, people that are trying to pursue this ideal world of value-based healthcare. So what is it? How do you actually make it come to life? And we can dig into more. Yeah. I'm curious if you guys all approach this from different perspectives. You know, Jared, before you were doing, were you an academic? You said 14 years. What was the first five to 10 of those years. So I was a researcher, biomedical engineering researcher before, um, you know, we spun out a uh, company out of my lab. Yeah. It's interesting. So from the research side, from sort of guys from the side, and from you know, having the government experience, I'm curious how you guys use those lenses to view uh, investing um, differently or, or where you have different paradigms and perhaps people who do, you know, only have traditional tech investing may come from. My point of view has always been at least started my career out at, at Salesforce.com and Microsoft in a very like heavy enterprise software space. And when you think of the most broken enterprise software problem on the planet, it is actually healthcare. 
And so that's how I ventured into this world. And you kind of look at the entire space and just see a world of opportunities, of things that can be made better and improved. And I'm in the camp that believes that trickle-down theory only happens in two places, in technology and healthcare. And so if you can apply great technologies to healthcare, they may be expensive right now, but there are ways. And say more about that. Why does it work here? It works in healthcare because when you invest to figure out how to solve the problem, whether it's on actual physical therapeutic pharmaceutical side or in the world that we spend more time in, digital therapeutics, right. on enterprise software behind the scenes, at a certain point, you get so, so much scale that it should go down. So trickle down meaning if you solve a specific problem for one group, it will trickle down. Absolutely. Right. Like if you find a great way to deal with, you know, I love like the Omada Health example, right? You find a way the diabetes prevention program so well for people, you're going to find a way to it to affect not just the top tier, right. but actually go down and actually affect every person that's part of this healthcare system. I'm sure, what about the market dynamics make that more likely for healthcare than, say, like education? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. I think because government plays a big part in healthcare. I think there are so many different styles of payers. There are the, the transparency. Like, there's just so many oddly, like, less market forces that make it so It's kind of interesting. Right in tech, it's the market forces that make things trickle down. But for healthcare, it's like you have entities that say, hey, that amazing innovation should be applied to everyone. Here is a subsidy. Here is a pressure. Right. I'm curious, you know, I'm curious for the types of businesses that, you know, after your governor experience, you would say, oh, I'm, I'm never funding that. But before that, you would have said, oh, actually, you know, that's pretty interesting. And vice versa, experience <laughs> the types of business where you say, oh, that needs to exist so much. And before the you know, governor experience, I, you may not have thought so. Oh, wow. That's a, gotta, gotta think about that one. Um, but it's, the things that immediately come to mind from, from that world is, I think once you see, pre-going into government, I used to think that regulations, that whole amorphous blob used to be things you should run away from. And I think Jared actually might have some really good insight here. It's like regulations are just quite rules articulated. And once you understand that, there are a group of entrepreneurs and really talented people that can go look at it and actually tackle problems within that space. And so before government, I would say run away as fast as you can. Now being in there, it's like if the regulation is spelled out, you quite predictably can figure out what you need to do to work with that regulation or believe it or not, you actually can reach out to the people at the other side that work at HHS or the FDA, whoever the regulatory body that you want to go uh, work with, like their, their phone calls, sorry, their phone numbers and emails are all on these government right. websites. You can go out and go after them. Yeah. It's interesting to think like, you know, think DJ and Todd Park, you know, after their experience, like, they could have started anything in the space they started. They decided to start what they did. Yeah. Which is interesting to see. You might have a you know more uh, appreciation for there's so much money here just waiting to be unlocked. Yeah. Todd, Todd Parker says, you know, what the healthcare system needs is you need to uh, liberate the data, right? You need to have flexible payment models and then you need to unleash the on DJ Potswell. They kind of did that, right? They're building a company called Devoted Health that's focused on the Medicare Advantage space with flexible payments, right? They're the entrepreneurs. And they believe if they create a fully integrated Medicare plan, they'll have the data that they need to improve care, right? And to reduce costs and to get rid of it. And so like, it's such a natural fit. And then you see those founders, like put their heart into it, right? The way that Todd talks about it, it's like you're, you know, your folks that get healthcare from devoted should be like your grandma or mother and how you take care of them. That's, I mean, I think what we see right now with innovation like that, taking root is, is a few things kind of close for one you're looking at such a talented leadership team, which we're just at the point in the sort of digital side of health innovation 
where we're having true repeat entrepreneurs, right? I mean, I think there are plenty of folks who have struggled in one paradigm, learned a lot, taken it to a new, but when you've got some who's actually this um, very complicated industry work, but you also have, I think the wisdom that's been built on a lot of the innovation over the past decade, which is, you know, sometimes you see a problem in healthcare and you're like, you know, let me just build a tool, right? Like I look at this and the provider using the tool they're using and I'm like, that has got to be driving you out of your mind. I'll just build you a better tool and then you'll be able to run and do it. And a lot of the lessons of the last, I'd call it a decade, um, and I look at Omada for this for sure. Omada wasn't able at the outset of what they were doing with diabetes prevention to go to all the care management groups around all of the insurers in the industry and say, hey, we've got a new tool for you to use to better manage folks who come in as pre-diabetic. Just use this tool and you'll help people. They had to do the whole stack, right? You have to actually deliver to build the tech and then you have to learn on top of all of that. And I think that that's been the key to unlocking a lot of there. And some of that is about actually capture the value that you're creating, but some of it is just the big part of the system isn't quite ready to own your idea to bring the full solution. And I know that's, you know, you're asking sort of the, the lens that I have from KP. I think part of my lens is owned by, I was working prior to joining the investing side in houses that were kind of funded by pharma, solving, solving problems for hospitals, solving problems for large insurance. And you start to realize being in some of these businesses, innovation is going to struggle to come from the incumbents. They're, they're juggling so much. There are so many pressures already. If you want to do something fundamentally different. So I was working plumbing of the insurance industry. It's all the back-end health IT for insurance. And we were trying to bring value-based benefits, uh, some of the, the new insurance players <laughs> are trying to do um, out of the gates. It was really hard to bring those two incumbents. And that's, for me, what pushed me on the investment side is let's actually stand in the corner of the folks who are trying to do this from a clean start, where they'll be able to bring in and teach the, the KP angle that I find so important from my own perspective as an investor is it both allows me and forces me to have a point on what matters in healthcare. Because there are both a lot of ways to make a lot of money in healthcare, <laughs> and there's a lot of ways to lose a lot of money in healthcare. And I think that coming from the, K the Kaiser Permanente platform, correct myself, uh, not the Kleiner Perkins platform, also a very valuable one, uh, but from the, the, the Kaiser Permanente perspective, we get to walk around to our clinicians and our administrators and say, you know, would you use this? Like something that we think is really important and needed right now is in the world of the patient financial. The cost of healthcare is ballooning all over our industry. We're starting to see echoes of that inside our own care system. And the reality of what it takes the insurer and a provider group to think about this changing relationship with the patients who are coming to see us who need care is really complicated. And when you're just talking to entrepreneurs, you can lose sight of just how complicated the reality is internally. So I think that it gives me respect for sort of what it's going to grow, but also makes me probably the biggest advocate in talking to entrepreneurs. You've got to do everything you can do to get inside, right? Like how can you actually get inside the, the system that you want to disrupt to understand from the inside what forces are pulling on those folks. I want to uh, play a game called Overrated and Underrated. This is for uh, no abstains. This is for... Uh, <laughs> I'm telling what? Tyler next month you stole it from him. Yes, Tyler Cowan. And it's, I'm not going to name specific companies. More so, this is for you know entrepreneurs out there who are looking to potentially pursue you know, business and healthcare or investors trying to get a perspective of, of the landscape. I'm curious for opportunities where you think are overrated. They're like, it's too hard. Too many people are trying to do it. It's too crowded. It's not the right time, whatever. And then opportunities are underrated where you think, wow, people really aren't paying attention to this. 
And for people listening, they should take a look here. If you want to see more, you should propose something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're going to throw things out, I did too. I'm like, I don't want to do the conversations with Tyler are going to go and suggest some to us. But blockchain and healthcare. Overrated. Overrated. Yeah, I would I would say overrated. Overrated, you know, depends on who you're talking to. I would say somewhere between over overrated or neutral, depending on who you're talking to. Just hasn't been, I mean, back to the, this perspective that I find important. I need, and with blockchain, what is the use case? Like, why do I need it, right? I mean, it took me a long time. It's just a totally my head against the wall to understand what we meant when we said blockchain. Right. But I think that even grasping that big concept is useful. But for, for healthcare, I think you got to get down to use case. Like, it's... it's um, well, if someone was super pro blockchain here, pro blockchain healthcare, they would say uh, medical record. I mean, what, what's their what's their argument? Supply chain, supply chain, okay. mm-hmm. uh, supply, identity, supply chain integrity for like health products would be is that I think a genuinely useful use case. No one's really kind of figure out the parameters of it, but it's not crazy. It's not like oh okay, immutable ledger makes sense. You know, it's one of those things that on the base case it, it makes sense. Now whether it is the that's why I'm saying, depending on who you're talking to, it's kind of, it's either over it or neutral. Yeah, I would throw in that mix as well too. It's like a, perhaps a place for sharing health records more publicly, right. in a public ledger, things mm-hmm. like that. High deductible health. Overrated. For the audience who's not as familiar, can you explain? Yes, a high deductible health plan uh, is the amount you need to spend before your insurance company starts covering your premiums for the year. Sorry, not premiums for the year. Right. So, you, in addition to paying your monthly health insurance payment pocket up in a deductible net. <clears throat> and I'll call, it's a tough one to answer because I think the, the trend of high deductible health plans is a tremendous challenge for the individuals bearing the costs of that healthcare, but also for our system, right? Because if you think about what that does fundamentally to the healthcare ecosystem, it makes all of these businesses that are so accustomed to B2B relationships, right? I'm an insurer, I sell to an employer, you're an employer, you pay me, I pay the provider. The patient just kind of bounces around. And like, granted, that's part of the economic challenge of the model, but it is how our business is structured. And so creating high deductible health plans has like, I'm going to say accidentally made us a B2C market (laughs) where suddenly individuals have to pay a big part of our revenue. And uh, we have not structured ourselves for that reality. So I say underrated because I don't think enough people are focused on all of the true needs and painful needs that are being created by that, that, uh, we just need to see a lot of the fintech innovation and all the other like parts of our economy that have embraced some of these kinds of challenges and created wonderful consumer experiences and wonderful prizes. We don't have a lot of that going yet. So I'll say I, I overrated, I think, because, and I would put these, I think you can't really look at high deductibles without looking at HS, HSA at the same time. It's really kind of the same paradigm. It, it puts too much, it's, it's a, I think it's a negative patient experience for pretty much anyone unless they are a complete expert in navigating the healthcare system. And even that, I mean, I remember seeing this like story on Twitter of some neurosurgeon at a UCSF, you know, having, uh, having a surfing accident and being temporarily paralyzed, they had to go through surgery. And, and this is someone who lives and breathes within the, you know, medical billing system and it's still, they're still dealing with this nightmare. So this is of, of, you know, some crazy, an insane bill that uh, is being charged because while they were paralyzed and out on the ambulance, they were supposed to indicate which hospital and which providers they would like to see and make sure they were in plan. If that is the is the reality for somebody who is highly intelligent, conversant with everything, has all these sort of back doors they can play, 
the system right now does not have the price transparency or the kind of accessibility for the average consumer for that to be a, a workable model. And you and you see that in terms of you know that was this is one of the things like great we're going to give we're going to give consumers the ability patients the ability to kind of drive change and to and to you know figure out and really kind of push pricing down because they're having to bear the burden and the trend is still the first class healthcare uh, health insurance plan is always you know we might call it, you know catalog plan so low low premium low deductible covers everything under the sun because it's like great I don't have to think about it but see I think the the premise of a high deductible plan as like oh it's going to lower costs because individual is going to now be responsible, quote unquote, for their healthcare costs. I completely agree. It's nonsense. Yeah. It's not fair. Yeah. And it is, to me, not a true premise. I think the true premise of high deductible health plans is that the cost has gotten too damn high mm-hmm. on the employer. And we've been riding that wave for a real long time. And yeah. it was going to crash at some point, And unfortunately, it's crashed towards the consumer. I think that for me is... The economic reality is too strong for the employer. There's not a lot of other alternative that they have. But for, from an innovation need perspective, it just creates painful that, that I think we could see a lot more innovation around. Because I don't know that there is... I agree with you that that premise, that claim of like, okay, now people are responsible. So they'll actually yeah. take responsibility for their health as we wag our fingers from the healthcare <laughs> system is crazy. Like that's not... It's not a rational argument. But the fact that the employers need to take, you know, take this out, um, I think is a rational and real situation. You mentioned that we don't have the tech infrastructure. Does this mean there are big opportunities there? Huge, huge. There's huge infrastructural reality that I think players are going to have to go through to take advantage of the innovation. But I think that you mentioned HSAs, you know, looking at some of the things that employers can do with HSAs for their health savings accounts, which... I had no idea, but they actually have evolved a lot from it came out initially and like you lost all your the year if you didn't spend it. <laughs> like that paradigm is, it seems like over and we're in a more rational era where an employer can help people, help their employees with an HSA to, to cover big costs. But that innovation is just, we're just seeing the first glimmers of how people approach paying for healthcare. Okay, suggestion for another topic. For- oh, mm-hmm. oh, you want two more? I get two more. The Affordable yeah. Care Act. <laughs> you go first. <laughs> Answer your own question. <laughs> who, who, who are we talking? Who are we talking? I mean, the answer of how it's rated, I think, is so variable that you would you would I'd have to say like, relative to maybe better thing to say the impact of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, impact of the Affordable Care Act. How about that? Mixed. Not a pass. <laughs> what? I said, isn't that a pass? I, well, okay. So um, what's positive? What's negative? Yeah. What's so. Yeah, positive, definitely guaranteed access to care was alleviating a a huge injustice in the system, had a bunch of downstream negative impacts as a a result of that, I think. But I I don't think that I don't think it's really arguable that the the idea of somebody who, you know, has a pre-existing condition and just you're, you're just screwed for life is, and I think that really kind of drove properly a lot of the impetus behind it. So negative, uh, I think community rating perverts the idea of insurance. It's, I think it's, I think the ACA generally might view it as a band-aid to try and cover up a lot of problems, but it's, is kind of a band-aid and in kind of the inert, the early conversations about it. And when we had a lot of discussion, it was essentially, I, I think, and you might be better having, having kind of been on the inside, a better, a better, um, have more context about this, but it kind of read to the objective observer who kind of knew the, the space of like, okay, this is transitioning to some sort of public option or a single player type of thing. This is, this is a step on the waypoint 
of Medicare for All, however you think about it, because there's it, it's injecting a lot of instability into the concept of insurance as we know it today. And we don't really have insurance. You know, we have prepaid healthcare, which we call insurance for the most part. I think some of the things towards centralization it was dry that it, it drove have also not been helpful with respect to innovation and thinking about you know physician-owned outpatient facilities, physician-owned hospitals. My view, kind of, you know, increasing centralization and making you know, entities like HCA even bigger and more powerful in the ecosystem isn't particularly helpful if we're all trying to fix things. That's sort of top of mind. I'll move over. I think that ACA in public opinion has become so beleaguered that I would actually call it now underrated. We're probably from <laughs> the start, it, was, it might have been like, it's going to save the world and it's going to be the worst thing ever. We were so polarized. And at this point... It's just taken so much flack. I think we lose sight of one decoupling one's health insurance coverage from employment, especially in today's economy where employment doesn't last your whole life, right? You have so much turnover because of all of those structures, I think was wise. And I think that the, the establishment of a whole new marketplace where one can get insurance, right? The, the individual market, that was such, I mean, the rescuing healthcare.gov, it was such an enormous thing to take on, right? I mean, just something that creating a whole new, you know, sort of front door for the healthcare system was huge. And then we have it now, right? And so whether or not it goes forward, I think a big question and what uh, way it goes forward is a big question. I, I love the two things you both said, which is it's underrated and it's a waypoint. Because I like, here, bias. Clearly, <laughs> but um, it really is. I, I think I think the amount of changes to our healthcare system that we that, that the ACA did, we kind of take for granted today. The fact that we all can be entrepreneurs and throw ourselves into a new company and not think about our personal healthcare, our spouse, our loved one, our kid. The prior generation, you stuck on to the big company that you're at because you needed healthcare, and like the ACA really unlocks that. We talk about high deductibles and. The pain of them, there used to be a world of pain where there were limits to how much insurance would cover out-of-pocket healthcare costs, leading to bankruptcies. And so it shifted us really far in a direction that is like more humane and I think American, but nowhere near are we done, right? Like the world of healthcare costs are still going up. The world of drug costs are going up and up. The idea of a public option, which I always love talking about the ACA today because it's like, well, we got to start talking about two point, right? And we got to talk about it in a way that both our Republican and Democrats and everyone in the middle and the left and right, like, can kind of rally around and say, well, what kind of healthcare system we want? On the over and under, I would love to throw out one more topic with AI. Appropriately rated. If you would ask me about five years ago, I would have said 1,005% overrated, but I would, uh, be, I'm biased because I, I have a little, some inside information given companies that we work with that I really can't divulge real specifics, but I, I would just say I we're three or four years at most away from pretty much every radiologist having an intelligent agent for every type of image that basically does the, the kind of the first pass. You, you, you don't think so? Well, we'll have the technology for it. Now, whether it's going to get covered or paid for, I think that's a little different story. That is the story of healthcare. <laughs> yes. I was going I was, I was to circle back and talk about what we, we might get to that later about um, from my perspective. The, uh, the things that you learn being in the ecosystem that the average tech investor wouldn't would know. Mm. If you build it, it means by no means doesn't mean they will come. <laughs> but the, the technology, the technology will definitely be there, whether it actually makes it into clinical use, we don't know. 
And I don't think it's inconceivable to say a generation out from there where you've essentially got the diagnosis happening and then you've got people just doing spot checking and sort of quality control going forward. And that's, that's, that's immense um, in terms of an actual clinical, clinically validated, useful output of that kind of tech. Yeah, I think I would say broadly, AI is still overrated because we're still in like, it'll solve everything mm-hmm. phase, right? I think that where it's getting appropriately to even underrated is in those use cases where they have figured out not just the technology that would help in a radiology read, but also why somebody would choose to use it, right? Like how does it fit into workflow and why somebody would choose to reimburse for it? How does it actually improve care in some way? And I think that that, um, those things being tied is not insignificant. I joke that like, that's how healthcare works, but I also think that there's a reason for that, right? So like, just because your technology is awesome, if it makes a doctor's life a hundred times more complicated or completes them out of a job, both of those things work against your interest in getting into market. And so I think those are, we're seeing the first signs of players who are taking all three elements really seriously and figuring out that glide path. And I think once, once the glide path starts to get in, Physicians, administrators, patients get accustomed to that being part of care. I think the demand may start to rest a bit through. But those first expect to happen where it's not just total, get the robots away from me. <laughs> yeah, well, I think the companies that are going to be really impactful in the next, say, three to five years are the ones who are basically pitching it as, you know, it's not going to change. You know, this is a, this is a software refresh for your PACs. PACs is the kind of the acronym for the, the piece of radiological software. It's a type of class of radiological software but, that stores and manages all the data. Uh, it's a software update on your PACs. The kind of the workflow is not changing. Now you have, you know, the AI helper. So I do think, I do think it's overrated the people who are saying it's like, oh, AI is going to replace, you know, replace humans in the, in the workflow. It's like, you know, look at it as AI augmenting. A human-driven workflow, not a replacing, assisting, speeding up. Like yeah, it's it, you know, for thin, hour, for, uh, uh, I like think fifteen years from now we're gonna Yes, we are. Well, fewer, I think, or or, or the, I think the per capita might be might be might go down. But yeah, we're still gonna have it. I mean, I, I you know, it's less the way I, I try to think of it. Really showing nerd cred right here. It's uh, less two thousand one. The computer is just going to take over everything and. You're, you're not going to have any visibility and more Star Trek where it's basically this super intelligent agent that knows everything or, or has a baseline understanding of all of the world's knowledge. And you can say, computer, what do you think about this? You know, or the computer does the first pass and you, you, you converse with it. I think that's sort of where folks were doing. But if, you know, anyone's ever watched, it's, there's still it's a story about characters, about people. I mean, I think that's the future we're all headed toward. It's a well-applied nerdiness right there. Yeah. That's well done. <laughs> yeah, can, can you tell I'm a software, a software founder? <laughs> I, I really like that point you made when you said uh, it not only if you, doesn't matter how great the widget is, but if it if it puts the doctor out of a job, surprisingly, you're going to see not really the much adoption in, in the marketplace. And I think this is this is a this is a blind spot that a lot of technology entrepreneurs and life science overlook. If you threaten reimbursement models, you better have a you better have a really good alternative, or you're going to find your product not succeeding. Yeah, and that's I mean I think what we see the radiology use case though, and so for 
the uninitiated, radiology is where all the, all the images are in healthcare, right? So just like any other tech where we're thinking about AI with images, uh, that that's where it is for healthcare. But I think the Star Trek analogy is so on point because it, it allows you to think of taking a lot of the mundane, frustrating parts of the job out and making the work almost more exciting and uh, more engaged, right? And I think that that's the applications that we see as the most likely to um, expand the fastest feel like that. And so 15 years out, what does that actually mean for the industry? It's hard to know exactly because I think it starts to change on itself, right? Folks coming into the radiology practice will expect themselves to be walking into a different job than those who took that role 20 years ago. Yes. Um, and so hard to say like what wholesale change looks like so much as um, a lot of the, the stuff that is better done by a computer should be done by a computer. <laughs> Going back to nerdiness for a second and speaking for all the or to all the technologists out there, let's get into what you're talking about before. Why is it that it's not necessarily true that it, or oftentimes not true that if you build it, uh, they, they will come? And where does that, why is that the case, especially in healthcare? And where does that man, tend to manifest most? Sure. So the, you were asking, you were asking kind of a little bit earlier about, okay, what did, what did, what's the transition? What do you learn being like a star AI? research scientist spins out their, you know, a company out of the lab that they're working in, going to go change the world. And long story short, that startup crashed and burned really quick. And, you know, since then, over the years, there are a few things kind of like, you know, a few principles. One is that the, the healthcare system is one of the most multivariate complex, you know, interactions of people, you know, either stakeholders among stakeholders upon stakeholders upon stakeholders upon stakeholders that you have to consider. And usually when a product fails, if it's not failing on strict clinical grounds where you, you, you know, it's got great tech and actually works, it's because you haven't considered the relevant stakeholders. Uh, some specific ones being uh, who's going to pay for it. So we, we have a very kind of complicated reimbursement model, fee, you know, for most part, you know, I hope we moved more toward a value-based care, but it's still mostly fee for service in the United States. You know, if you, can't find a way to get your product reimbursed. If there's no payment for it, and you haven't considered that from day one, it's really, really quickly not going to go anywhere. You're going to have a hard time selling it, despite the fact it might be amazing. Similar to that, if it is interrupting an kind of an existing reimbursement model. So I'll, I'll kind of give you an example. You know, uh, there are different. There's this. Uh, not to go too much in the weeds, but we've got different what we call codes for different actions, you know, or procedures within kind of a clinical workflow. And if you release this new widget, which supplants an existing widget, but this new widget is coded X, old widget was coded Y, and the payment associated with them are very, very different, you're going to have a very hard time seeing adoption of that. I also think that one thing, you know, we're relative to stakeholders aside from pure dollars and cents is, uh, Looking at, well, how does this, how do your product, how does your product get sold? You know, who, where are the, who are the intermediaries? How does, you know, where are all the steps in the sort of the distribution supply chain that you had to take care of? It's, it's very analogous, I would say, for kind of like tech, tech investors and tech founders and entrepreneurs of the fantastic software product with the zero distribution strategy. You know, we don't need to market our product. It's so great. 
you know, someone, you know, someone who made like developer tool that does something and it's like the greatest thing in the world. And, like every software engineer that uses it, uh, thinks it's the greatest thing in the world, but they don't think they have to spend any time telling people and therefore the product falls flat on its face. So that's, you know, that challenge in pure software is just magnified several times over. I think the biggest thing that for me, this goes back to, because it's not, so it's not just reimbursement and it's not just the workflow of the folks that, um, that you're hoping will use the product or will be supporters of the product. And it's not just all of the other stakeholders around that. There, there's just, it's such a, um, a layered system to get into. And so if you want to do something in almost any facet of healthcare, I think the people who have done it the best have found a way to steep themselves in it before they build too much. Right. And I think that that's, we're just learning from the founders of a company called call nine that's trying to change how, um, nursing homes connect to emergency care. Um, when somebody in a nursing home has an acute need, how do they access emergency care? Um, and the founder was saying that he was at the behest of um, the hologram of Y Combinator, went and just lived in a nursing home for three months, literally lived in a nursing home months, because how else can you know the ins and outs and what's happening and who shows up and what is that person supposed to be doing and what are they not doing if they're having to do this? Um, and I think that that is something that this system, I know uh, Christine Lemke said this on your program early in one of your early episodes, the system is really opaque. It's really hard to see. And so that, like, it's so important for us to have people with fresh ideas, with that, like, commitment to change and, like, this doesn't make sense. We've got to find a way to change it. But then having the compassion for the way the system works to say, I'm going to at least get close enough to you to understand why. And in understanding why it will help me be a smarter, I'll bring a smarter product to market because product market fit matters in healthcare. Like it doesn't matter anywhere else. I mean, it's not just about, did I think about marketing? It's, do I have the right set of things? I might have an amazing technology, but I could shift it two steps to the right, two steps to the left and have something that actually works in the market where the product I initially thought I needed to bring can't get anywhere on its own. So that to me is the, like finding a way to steep yourself in that environment that you want this thing to work in will teach you so much more than you can imagine about what that product market fit may be. Yeah, I think just to add on that, I would say you really need to come to healthcare more so even than other industries with an attitude of of kind of humility and a beginner's mind. Because I, there's something I've seen with, with sort of startups and founders that haven't succeeded is you, there's too much arrogance. You, know, you see a problem and you have this sort of like, of course, this is a huge problem. Why doesn't anyone solve this? You know, it's crazy. We could make so much money. And it's because they haven't done the hard work, to your point, of steeping themselves in the system, actually understanding and, real, you know, having this premise of, you know, I'm might not, probably not the only person who's thought of this before. You know, <laughs> it's, I'm not the only smart person on the planet. This is, it is a very complicated system with a lot of money going through it and a lot of opportunity. So if you, if you see problems in that you think you can solve and you've identified, it's, it always behooves, uh, you know, what borrow from Steve Blank, what you might call more customer discovery than you might otherwise do. Really try and unpack why something is the way it is before you start thinking about solutions. You'll save yourself a lot of time and capital. I was like, I think you can increase your chance of success by having as a diverse team as possible, yes. right? It's like, if you are just, you know, if you are an A engineer 
find a physician. If you're a physician, right. find a patient. If you're a patient, find, like you have to actually put together teams that have seen every single like, problem you're trying to tackle. But then not just that, you also really need to take on, I think, these days. Mm-hmm. You know, Liz, you were saying something earlier. It's like you really need to own more of the problem in the stack. Because I think to expect building just a tool or an app that someone will use and you can hand over isn't how healthcare works. Healthcare is so local. It's so regional. It's so, you know, someone owns where the money goes to and from. And so in order to jump in the middle of it, you actually have to align the problem. And it's kind of inspiring to see a new generation of companies that are coming about in the past couple of years that are saying, hey, I'll own it from start to mm-hmm. and I'm going to replace a big part of this. You know, maybe in tech terms, it's like you got to own pretty much the whole stack. Yeah, I was going to ask, how do you advise entrepreneurs for when they should be focused on building within the first full stack solution? Yeah, mm-hmm. you, you build in the existing solution if there's a mechanism to get distribution, right? right? Like there's a reason why we build for the app store and things like that, because for consumer products and enterprise products online works wonders and for marketplaces, but that doesn't exist here. So most of the time, you're going to have to not leverage another distribution channel and you're going to have to build a full stack, have a really competent sales team that goes out there and to, you know, Jerry, your point, Stephen Blank style, knock us right and sell. I think we're even seeing this with, I mean, the, the most obvious is where it's sort of a healthcare service that you're trying to provide and you actually have to, even though there is an existing set of providers that could hypothetically provide it, you're having to do it yourself. But even, you know, um, we haven't talked about like digital therapeutics, right? So these folks who are trying to figure out how do you make an app, a video game, a VR modality, a something, a therapy, like a thing that a doctor would prescribe to a patient, right? Like, I, I mean, I think even inside this world, have we all ever thought about what if my doctor was like, hey, here's a video game for your kid to deal with their ADHD. There's so much, uh, and that's, you know, a model that's out there right now with Achille Interactive that that they are trying to figure out this works. We have evidence. We're actually going through an FDA process to prove it. But that's actually a complicated conversation to have with a provider, with a patient. Never mind, I don't have a drug that goes, a pill that goes in a bottle that goes through a PBM and it lands on these pharmacy. So how do I distribute? Um, and I think it gets to your point, Ryan, of team. Uh, if you look at the team in a company like Achille, they have, you know, the a two a person, folks who are very forward-leaning, want to disrupt, want to do something new but have deep experience in building a pharma supply chain, a pharma network, a pharma sales force. And that's something that for most early stage companies is sort of like, I'll partner with somebody to do that. And you realize some of these things that you want to do that might be so disruptive to the industry, you may actually have to, it must have, it has to be a big enough idea that you can build a big enough company to kind of capture the value you think you're to market. So it makes these things kind of higher risk to take on more of that stack. Like when do you take on the full stack? You have to know that what you're building is going to be high enough value because it's going to cost you more full stack, right? Like that, that is just inherently part of what you're doing. But it's typically when you go to those folks who might otherwise be partners and there is material weakness here for what I mean, right? Like it, for some reason, this doesn't line up with your incentives, your interests, your capabilities. So if I want to do this, am I going to myself? I will say we're also of the mind of partner wherever you can because this stuff is expensive. <laughs> so if you can find your through line and actually partner with the, with some existing channel or some other new entrant, that's almost, well, that's often a very good idea. That's true. Distribution through employers, distribution through health plans. So mm-hmm. maybe I take back my original statement saying there's no distribution pathways. There are. <laughs> there I mean, are. like 
incidentally, digital therapeutics was going to be my question to you. Overrated or underrated? <laughs> Throw it out there. Digital therapeutics, overrated or underrated? I'm going to say underrated first because I don't think we've truly understood the economic models around them and their impact in their system, both on a cost from the cost side and the impact side, right? Like companies like that go after the diabetes prevention program or the Mongos and others, you know, there was an existing code that put a value to what that kind of therapeutic would do and they turned it different, right? Yeah. There's a world of things that could be paid for that we just don't know how to pay for it. So mm-hmm. I'm putting it in the um, and I am contrarian to most people I talked to on this, but I think they're hugely underrated because, and there's a lot of froth and buzz around genetics right now, in part because that little segment of our industry is getting organized. But I think underrated because there is real value. So if I, like when I think of digital therapeutics, I think of two big buckets. One bucket is the diabetes prevention program or cognitive behavioral therapy or things that are like otherwise delivered person to person that have been in the literature and frankly in a lot of guidelines as like this is the first thing you're supposed to offer somebody struggling with anxiety, struggling with insomnia, struggling or just been diagnosed as pre-diabetic. The first thing you're supposed to do is these treatment protocols, but we don't because it's hard to find those providers. It's costly to provide. It's a pain for, you know, an individual to go in for their group meeting once a week. It just doesn't really fit with modern lifestyle. And that to me is a whole class of what I call digital therapeutics of evidence-driven therapy, but delivered digitally in mm-hmm. a way that just radically opens up access to these things that we've known forever, that this mm-hmm. is what we should be doing. And the system is just not well-structured for us. The digital modality creates huge opportunity. And I think what's interesting is that's kind of made way for this other bucket, which is where the digital modality is itself like the R&D fodder, right? Like the, how can I play with a VR headset for health and pain and uh, dealing with fear or PTSD or all these things where because VR exists, I as a, a an R&D, you know, PhD can go and tinker and try to figure out like, what can I do with this modality video game? Same thing, right? It's, it's like we're discovering therapeutic benefit in these modalities. So those two buckets, they have very different paths to like how they need to prove themselves out mm-hmm. um but i think you know forward-leaning health systems like my own are starting to think about what new just fundamentally open up for how mm-hmm. we provide access to patients and how we care for patients and what things that we previously you know could only prescribe painkillers for can we do something fundamentally different so there's just a lot of exciting new territory that when i look at disrupting the world of pharmaceuticals broadly we suddenly have these two buckets to pull from that are pretty rich uh, and should have really big potential. But I do think, it, A, it's a bit of a long game, and B, the biggest risk that I want to see us get through in the short term is the snake oil risk, right? The snake oil risk being, so OMAD has proven out and some of their peers have proven out how well you can deliver the diabetes prevention program. Um, and if we don't set up the right incentives for what it takes to provide DPP digitally, Everybody can provide DPP digitally and then nobody gets outcomes, right? So suddenly I'm paying for something, I'm not seeing outcomes, and I say, like, ah, it's snake oil, it doesn't work, never mind. And that could get this whole category dismissed if we don't put high efficacy expectations uh, on these things. But I'm very, very bullish. I want to end with sort of a sort of a request for products. Um, and uh, <laughs> I want to perhaps make it easier by separating it to different customer segments. So maybe. We'll do consumer, provider, payer, and so much employer. And the idea is, where do you want to see more innovation or, or people working on? And if you have any sort of 
don't do that. That's really hard. But that is, uh, you know, way, way too overdone. Just not the right time. But let's start with consumer. They want to see people experiment and put your investment in. You know, the, the consumer relationship, I think, is changing. And the expectations that we have as consumers is changing as well, too. And I think there's an opportunity for a lot of companies for, you know, every single age group, for whether it be pediatrics to young adults to being an adult to having kids to then aging and then you know you have senior populations of like grandmas and grandpas that all need things and they need to know how to navigate they need to know how to pay you can actually deliver healthcare better to them you can logistics to them you can deliver better you know drugs to them there's so many ways you can tackle this problem with the caveat of course is you know is this something that me as a consumer, I'm going to pay out of pocket? Is it something me as a caregiver, I'm going to pay for somebody else? Or is this something that a payer, i.e. an insurance company or employer is going to pay for? We as a fund don't do a lot of direct-to-consumer just because if, if we have an asset to play from, it's the fact that we've got everybody else in the care system inside our organization. But what I would say on the consumer front is I am thirsty for, and I think we continuously look for those companies that are going to come in and teach us as a big enterprise how to better connect with consumers. We do a lot internally. We have our whole Thrive campaign that's been going in a really amazing way to connect us to our communities and individuals. Um, so we have a lot of expertise in-house, but I think there's still so much more that we could learn. And so, and I think it's it's impressively hard for somebody from the outside to, to come in with a product that's supposed to help us better connect uh, or provide a better consumer experience to get in. And so that's, it's a very high value thing that's really tough to do. So it's sort of put the, uh, the watch out of like, that's really hard. Um, but also the, the call, I, I would love to see um, somebody build to help us do that better. Providers. I was going to ask an over and under it, but people trying to take on, you know, the PRs. I'm going to say, I think that that world, it's overrated. I think that market, um, you know, the high tech act and all the money that went in to kind of create that industry and really prop it up. Um, that money's gone. So if you're competing with, you know, a couple of players, I think the handful of like the top two take up 60% of the market, the top 10 make up the rest of the 80, like to disrupt them is going to be really hard. And I think that's actually an area where the regulatory powers that we need to start to help other players come in there because I think the EMR has actually been like the operating system for the position. And so, you know, you can go to a Kaiser and the physician is in front of Epic all day long, but how do you get other products in front of them? I think that's the real question. It's not necessarily, you know, competing with it anymore, but how do you get it into that flow? And so I think trying to compete with is overrated. I think I'd even put that in PHRs as well too. Mm -hmm. Creating a better personal health record. Um, it's still needed. It's so desired. I mean, Apple, I think, is coming along and maybe trying to make that just table stakes and make, if you can integrate all your records there, we can build things on top of it. So, and kind of like think of the harder problem that you can put the blockchain on. The blockchain. The work. Um, any other things within providers? Providers are brutal to sell to. So I I think if you force rank the best way to make early revenue in healthcare currently, mm -hmm. employers, mm -hmm. insurers, providers, consumer is the order that I would put them in. Um, and that's consumer is downgraded in my list just because I don't live in that world and it's very scary to me. <laughs> uh, but I think providers tend to be, you need to have a pharma style sales force to get to a lot of providers. Opportunities like EMR, I mean, I think the, the electronic medical record systems that exist today, we're still in a period of consolidation, right? Mm -hmm. We're still in a period where like, if you think of the EMR is largely not 
the purview so much of the the end providers, it's the purview of their IT teams who are still dealing with just like, we have just taken on so much new technology and we're still trying to sort out how to make it work for us. So there's a lot of focus on optimization, a lot of focus on kind of how can we do the most with what we have, um, because the reason that the epics of the world have been winning lately, and lately meaning the last five, 10 years, is because prior to that, it was a thousand flowers blooming and the IT teams were like, ah, there's so much to manage. If you let me do everything in one platform, that makes my life easier. And I think we're still in the digestion phase of that. And my expectation is that there's anybody can point to any number of things that the big EMRs could do better. Those opportunities will still exist, but you're watching for the time when that um, it matters enough to the CIO, to maybe the chief medical officer, the folks who hold influence over um, those IT organizations which obviously there's a huge dialogue back and forth, but I think there is a lot of trust to sort of what the IT organizations are saying right now of like, let us just get these systems to work as best as they can before we start to take on other capabilities. And that's going to limit innovation that tackles kind of the heart of the EMR for a while. And anything else, either within the payer world or the self-checked player world that you're, that you want to see innovation on or experimentation on? Um, I'll say, I think we have, I'm not the first person to say this, but a growing need for innovation around both sides of the opioid crisis. Um, And so both sides, meaning upstream alternatives to pain management. Um, How can we help people not go into deep back surgery, not go into um, other, uh, go straight into addictive substances? What else can we be offering uh, to help manage pain? And then on the downstream, um, how can we help once addiction is present? I think that that is an area where it's tough, it's sticky, but I'm, you know, I look at all of the innovation that we've seen in the mental health world over these last 10 years. And there's just been so much innovation that I think 10 years ago, I would have said like, what, you know, what innovation could you see in mental health? It's so stigmatized. It's so challenging. It's so underfunded by the system. And yet, you know, we're seeing a swell of that. And so I think the, when I look at the world of, of what we need, uh, things around the opioid epidemic are important. Cool. Guys, thank you. It's been an awesome thank episode. Thanks for having us. Can you let us know uh, where people can, can find you, learn more about it, if you're online and where? If, let us know if there's anything we should stay tuned for. Enzyme.com, or you can find me on Twitter at, at Seehofer, S-E-E-H-A-F-E-R. Um, and we are kpventures.com, and uh, my Twitter handle is Liz underscore Rocket, I'm pretty sure. Otherwise, it's liz.rocket. And my tagline is not bad at Twitter. But I do put stuff up there, and it's a good place to get connected to our team and see what we're working on. Myself is uh, Ryan at kleinerperkins.com, and then on Twitter, Rypan. And then I would always love to throw in a plug for all the reports that Rock Health has. I think for me, you know, it was first funding to my company, got Jared's company funded by them, built to Liz is a big. LP of them, they put out some of the best research reports there, and I look at them every quarter only because it's the true snap of what's happening on digital health. They care a lot about trying to report that in a really like just data-driven way. And I think if anyone on this, like listening to this podcast, is hungry for more, start there. You'll spend a couple of hours just like reading. Yeah, reading, reading. Great. Perfect. Thank you guys. Thank, Thank you. you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc.